Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us Rusty Reno, who needs no introduction. Welcome, boss. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be on, All right, well, on your podcast. The, 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 the magazine uh, that is coming out, you have a nice little piece that I thought we might open with about architecture. You say that, that uh, Manhattan apartment buildings, there are a couple of them that are being built, and they're, they're so old-fashioned. They're, they're, they're almost they're wonder, obsolete. They're wonderfully they're old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, is, what is that about? Well, you think there's something significant going on there? Instead of, instead of the fancy, postmodern, the glass uh, kind of apartment, these are actually in, they, they, they look like they're inspired by 1937. Well, even earlier, I think. The kind of classic period for the New York apartment building runs from about 1905 or 1910 until, until the Great Depression. There, there were not a lot of buildings built in New York during the Depression. Yeah. Empire State Building was one of the great exceptions. But these buildings that they march up Park Avenue, if you if you look up Park Avenue from the Helmsley Building mm-hmm. near Grand Central, right. you see this great wall of you know they are fifteen to eighteen story apartment buildings, and they have uh, a kind of classical design. Um, many of them sort of Georgian brick feel to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, others of them. They're kind of Venetian palaces that have been reshaped in order to be apartment buildings. But in any event, I think for most New Yorkers, that is the, the sort of the paradigm of the grand New York apartment house. And they're very desirable. They so when you go online and you're looking to rent an apartment, you can select one of the choices is to screen for pre-war buildings. And, and a pre-war building is that time period that I've described. Mm-hmm. Um, and... When I, I was walking and I was at 80, 80th and 2nd Avenue and I couldn't believe my eyes. I'm looking at this building, it's almost completed. It's a 17-story apartment building and then a kind of companion building in the same style, the next block that's about 24 stories. That could have come right off of Park Avenue. Yeah. It's a beautiful rendition of the same. It's not copycat, but it's so clearly in the same style as the pre-war building. And I guess some developer kind of realized that there's money people in are, this. there's money in this, <laughs> and that which really gave me heart, because so many apartment buildings that have been built in the last thirty years look either like transplanted towers from Miami Beach, festooned with balconies, mm-hmm. as if you're going to 
sit in your balcony five stories above Second Avenue and listen to the traffic roar by, which is mm -hmm. kind of absurd. Or they look like the sort of faceless glass buildings of Midtown uh, office buildings. Right. And right. and so I I think uh, this this betokens it was an encouraging sign that the fabric of the city might recover what I would think of as the vernacular of New York. This sort of the, a look that that I that is very distinctive to the city, and it gives the city a more unified. Um, feel, so to speak, yeah. without being, there's a huge amount of variety in these buildings, but they're nevertheless unified in the way that if you go to London and and you walk in in Belgravia or or Mayfair or something, you, you, you have a sense of these buildings, they work with each other rather than working against each other. Right. And if these apartment buildings are a great commercial success, we don't need to make the argument. Uh, indeed, money talks. The money does talk, and I'm I'm hoping that this developer makes a very tidy profit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, the the money aspect would be, it's where people want to live. It's it's the human feel that is the demand here, not a theory. It's not it's not even uh, nostalgia. At least in the mind of the architect, it's what people like. It's what people want to be around. Well, the buildings, these have a limestone or it could be a, a kind of, um, nowadays they, they have a special concrete stone that, that has a limestone look. But it, I think it's about four stories of this limestone treatment facing, and then it moves to a very elegant, a very attractive, warm brick. And then it's got, I think, another uh, limestone layer. So it breaks the up. Ribbon the ribbon. That's so that the, yeah, so you your eye is broken and there's setbacks at the top right. to give it a, a kind of a nice feeling of a good good New York building, you know, has a, a decorate. It feels like it's got it's topped, so right. to speak. Right. And right. You know, I was just impressed there. I mean, you can do everything can be done well and poorly, including the sort of modernist look. Uh, and these just struck me as just well executed buildings. Okay. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's part of a trend, actually. Uh, there is a modest trend in this direction. I was, uh, it was about two or three years ago that the new colleges at Yale opened up, mm -hmm. the residential colleges. And the Yale campus features these kind of collegiate Gothic look. And these, these new colleges were built in the collegiate Gothic style. And they're really well executed. It's the Robert Stern's firm that designed them. And uh, better than his other things, he does kind of a classical look, but I've found some of the buildings that he's done less than satisfying, whereas these just struck me as just being done very, very well. Yeah. So again, yeah. demand. Students, when they go to Yale, they don't want to live in some nameless, faceless, modernist dorm. They want to have, they want to have the Ivy League experience. And right. that involves... You know, buildings that you don't find in um, shopping malls and strip malls around the United States. Indeed. Let's turn to some some politics. We had the State of the Union address last night. Indeed. This was we're, we're recording the day after here in, in the offices, and there was one thing that you mentioned when we were talking uh, before that Donald Trump brought up an issue that I don't think we've heard for forty years, maybe longer. School. Prayer. It was quite striking, wasn't it? It was quite striking. 
Because Donald Trump gets down on his hands and knees and prays. <laughs> and his, he has a prayer closet, and he has a prayer shawl, and he, he has beads. Uh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, you know, in my book, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, one of the chapters is on the need for a healthy society to encourage citizens to seek higher things. That's my ecumenical way to try to talk about the need for some religious horizon. Um, in our society, we don't say that you have to believe one religion or the other or any in order to be a citizen of our country. But I think good leadership encourages the citizenry to live for more than consumption and pleasure and the affairs of the moment. And, and so I was very encouraged by this. We have a, in the 50s, the United States Supreme Court ruled that school prayer in public schools at graduations and prayers in the classrooms violated the Establishment Clause, the First, Amem the First uh, uh, Amendment. And, uh, it, you know, I mean, requiring a child to participate does strike me as coercive, but that a school would have regular forms of, whether it's Bible reading or prayer, uh, doesn't mean that 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 strikes me as a as a perhaps healthy corrective to our current obligatory secularism. In the fifties, I can understand the judges. We lived in a, that was a time of resurgence of Christianity after the war, the 50s. And so they wanted to protect the, the few atheist children from the sort of coercive effect of, the, um, of this incredibly powerful consensus. Well, we don't live in that kind of era. We live in a time when young people are, are bewitched by social media and in the thrall of you know, whatever the mass culture is providing them, we need to lift their eyes up a little bit higher than the, the very low horizons that our mass culture currently um, gives them. So I think it's a good move. The, the idea that a moment of prayer or of silence at the beginning of a school day is somehow coercive and discriminatory, it's just abnormal. It, it, it's just, it's bizarre to think that this is a, a violation. It is going to harm atheist kids. I, I mean, you know, you can you can have a moment of silence. The atheist kids can they must believe in some things. Right, they must right. revere some things. It's you good can for make that. it's good for everyone to sort of contemplate the fact. Let's I say that there's something higher, and then we can we can debate. And it's not the place for the United States government to, to specify that which is higher. But, or the local school board uh, to specify that which is higher. But we live in a time when, when we just don't give young people anything um, to aspire to uh, or to reflect upon something greater. And so I think it's a good step. I think it, um, uh, it, but it was striking in 2020 well, well, to hear that in the... So, so, so why is Donald Trump doing this? This, this? this is someone, if you asked someone seven years ago, if you said, uh, do you know Donald Trump? First of all, he's going to be delivering a State of the Union address. <laughs> right. and, and they'd want to put you in a straitjacket. Uh, second of all, in that State of the Universe, he will be praising school prayer. And they, they would say, now I know that you're crazy. 
No, that's really true. I mean, I think George W. Bush was a pious man, but it, I don't think it ever occurred to people in that administration to to want to stir that pot. Mm-hmm. And I don't theocons know. exactly theocons. I don't know what 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 his administration is thinking. Uh, other, it could be the case that they that they they have an intuition that the secularism has gone too far. I actually think that Donald Trump does have a an instinct for having reverence for certain things. I actually think his patriotism is sincere and deeply felt. Uh, I, I think that he simply out of just an ordinary, maybe you could say just an ordinary bourgeois middle class 1950s sense, it, it's good for kids to have a little reverence. What's well, like the Dwight Eisenhower, yeah. you know, what, what do you say, uh, you know, religion is very important, I don't care which one it is or something like that. <laughs> People mock that. But I think it's actually it actually reflects a, a proper sentiment for a public leader who who I think uh, you know again should raise our eyes higher than the horizon of the immediately political. One of the problems we live in a highly politicized time, in part because there is no transcendent horizon, and, and there is so it softens actually. People worry that these sorts of things theologize political conflict as if it could be more theologized than it currently is. Right, right, and <laughs> secularism doesn't. But I think that, I think that uh, on the contrary, that uh, a transcendent horizon relativizes political conflict. Hmm. I mean, that's certainly the case in Lincoln's second inaugural, where he uses the idea of the inscrutability of God's ways as a, as a it's his entry point into trying to counsel the victorious north uh, of uh, not to sort of make the war perpetual. Yeah, right. I, I would say that the disallowance of that, that moment of school prayer, how many, first of all, how many devout people has that, has that alienated? How far has that restriction on any expression of, of faith, of prayer, on any public grounds, has just gone beyond any common sense? That's my, I agree with you. Like I said, I think, you know, uh, there certainly are appropriate limits. You know, we don't want, you know, there to be a denominational takeover of a public school system. But I think it's... A, you know, it's it's like I say, it's a, again, it's a kind of fitting, it's moderate. Uh, it's like we published Rick Garnett's article uh, advocating a moderate establishment, and this is sort of something that Rick Garnett had in mind. If 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 the absolute line of separation, church and state, if that is so liberating and freeing, a a principle, then why has it produced so much conflict? <laughs> well, why does it feel so coercive if it's actually a, a, a battle against coercion? That's, that's what I would say. Yeah, well, it's hard to know. Yeah. Well, a lot yeah. of things have gotten us into our current situation. It's going to take a lot of, a lot of different good decisions to get us out of it. Uh, another thing 
that the president brought up that we, I guess in the last year has become an issue because of the law passed in New York, the statements by the governor of Virginia about late-term abortion. Mm -hmm. what, did, what did Trump say there? Well, I was very struck in his call to ban late-term abortions uh, in the State of the Union speech. Again, I just don't think that we have had a Republican since Roe, Republican president, who has been, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I just don't think there's been in, I mean, they've signaled their opposition to abortion, but to, and it's just a forthright way for the President of the United States to call for a ban on late-term abortion. It's such a direct and unequivocal way. And of course, with the very moving um, uh, intro of the young girl that was born prematurely and survived. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, that marks a new phase in the pro-life movement and uh, about which I'm hopeful that we can that we can make progress there. Um, so I think that's I think it was an important statement. I think one reason why the establishment was and is so uncomfortable, apart from politics, they 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 feel this this guy he forces things that no. really don't. Do we really need to force this? Do we? I, yes, I agree with you on this, but do we really need to raise this question right now? That, that, that's Trump's. That's his 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 immoderate nature. It's it's you know the guy who says things that just shouldn't be said, even if we know that this and that. No, I think you're right, Mark. I, I do think that, uh, and there's an interesting parallel here, in in uh, Catholic Church affairs, about trying to keep it together, and and I have a lot of respect for both clergy and political leaders who are trying to if you will, keep it together. And it was Paul VI who said in, towards the end of the tumultuous 1970s that it was important to avoid opposing extremisms. And that kind of set the tone for the, the settlement um, after that John Paul II, of course, uh, I think strengthened um, after, after Vatican II. Um, but it, it, it's like so many other things, it's kind of coming undone, that settlement. And we have German church pushing a kind of radical revisionist line, as well as tratty integralism, as the recent article in City Journal uh, gave wonderful analysis of. And we see the same thing in the political realm. And so, uh, you know, um, I do think politicians should be working towards sustaining um, the, 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 civic, the bonds of civic friendship. But at the same time, they have to be reality-based. And, you know, so you have to walk that line between acknowledging, you know, trying to repair the breaches, but also sometimes it's important just to acknowledge the breach. Mm -hmm. And on the question of life, uh, it's just not, it doesn't lend itself to compromise. Um, no. You know, it's, no. uh, it's not something about which I'm interested in co compromising, for instance. Uh, I think it's it's a it's a sign of where we are right. in 2020, right. and uh, you know. So I guess my spirit here is sort of not to judge those 25 years ago, perhaps, or even a dozen years ago, who were trying to sort of keep it together, so to speak. Yeah. But I just feel like that that time has passed, and and now we're we are in a time of decision. Now, the 
the, the, you've talked a lot in, for a couple of years now about that post-war consensus, that mm -hmm. form of liberalism, one of whose tasks was to moderate the extremes. Yes. Right-wing extremism, left-wing extremism. But you're saying the settlement, it's becoming, it's becoming undone. Well, don't you think, that, Mark, we see that in the universities? I mean, I think baby boomers like us now run the universities. By and large, when I meet with them, they're, they are moderate, actually. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with them about most things, they're moderate but they're moderate, liberals, moderate liberals. But they're completely undone by the people to their left. And they seem unable to actually um, govern these institutions. They capitulate so readily. Uh, and I think that, it's just hard to know. Why, why is that happening? Very mysterious. But it could just be that, you know, the, the kind of temporizing, ad hoc, kind of hold it together approach. It can only go work for so long before yeah. people uh, start to um, uh, break away. And that... One, one would say that, and I, I think this is true, that moderate liberals uh, simply found or have found that they cannot contain the, the forces of identity politics extremism that come from the left. Yes. And that they, they were able to, on the right, in part because... The institutions, the cultural institutions, certainly, they're not open to the extreme right. There are no extreme right wingers in in you know in the in the culture sphere and in higher education. There are many extreme leftists yeah. on on college faculty, and that and the moderate liberals liberals just uh, they they can't hold them back. One. One issue, I, I wrote about this a few issues ago, and we've talked about this, is things like the, the diversity issue, where one has to swear fealty to diversity. You have to accept as dogma that diversity is our strength. Mm -hmm. Now, you, 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 you said this recently. That's not true. No, unity is our strength, not diversity. Unity is our strength, not diversity. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of duh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, as far as a university is united around a pursuit of truth, that's uh, yeah. It's a much it's a strong, healthy environment. Uh, when people talk about diversity, I, I, you know, they're, maybe they're talking about justice and so forth like that. But to make it a, end in itself is really kind of crazy. But you know, I I think what a book that really helped me. I recommend to listeners is George Marsden's book, *The Twilight of American Liberalism*. Yes, liberalism in the 1950s, post-war liberalism after World War II, and he, in the term "twilight," which is paradoxical, is really the time of ascendancy of establishment liberalism. But what he means by that is that the liberalism it it had it had sort of given up on a kind of intellectual foundation and really adopted a purely pragmatic approach. Yeah, and to your point, Mark, you know, people who want to stand on principle, left or right, become, you know, they, they, they become dissatisfied with this purely pragmatic kind of hold it together approach, balancing right, of extremes. Right. And it's funny, if you, if you present yourself as a balancer of extremes, you create incentives for people to become more extreme because <laughs> then we get a better deal when it comes time to balance. Yeah. Yeah, and the extremists look at you as a trimmer. 
you're a weasel. <laughs> right. You, you moderates, you know, you, you should take a stand. And I, you know, I remember T.S. Eliot, he gave a lecture once in the late 40s to a, a group, a literary society, I think it was in the Midwest somewhere, where he talked about higher education. And he, he, he actually talked about a conservative classical approach to higher education. He admired that. And he then talked about the leftist, the Marxist sense of education. And he said, it's wrong, but he actually admired it. What he found quite, he didn't use the word contempt, but he saw the liberal, the liberal sense of education was, we don't really believe in any end. There's no telos. The Marxists have their telos. The classicists have their, have their telos. And the, the liberals, they're about critical thinking. Well, right? it's, uh, so this is the, the technocratic, yeah, instrumentalist is, sense of... It's Marston's uh, observation in the book. It was observed with great kind of conceptual clarity by Alistair McIntyre and After Virtue, quite literally, that, there, that liberalism uh, uh, forbids you actually to articulate it and so it's uh, explicit rejection of teleology. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, well, this is why but we are getting the moderation is not such a bad thing. I mean, no, I'm, no, but it's, but the problem with moderation is that moderation is a it's a secondary, not a primary virtue. That is to say, it it, it moderates a substantive thing. It is not itself. It cannot itself be the foundation right. of an institution or a or a culture. And I think this is one reason why we're kind of coming to this juncture and things are so heated. Now, that well, you say are, return of the strong gods. Well, people are seeking. This is where we're at. Yeah, people are seeking. They, people intuitively sense that there has to be, a, you have to be for something, right? And then you can be moderately for it, but you can't be for moderation. Right, right, <laughs> right. Well, this is, I would say, you can't be for diversity. No, I, I don't. For I what? Agree. Yeah, towards what end? Well, well, what happens when you get diversity? What then? Right, right. No, I think that's right. Say we want diversity, as I said in the book on resurrecting the idea of a Christian society. That when people say diversity, they often that they really mean is solidarity. That is to say, they want their community or their life, their friendship network, or what have you, to to include people. Because you can't be in solidarity to, with people who are invisible to you, or people whom, whose, whose humanity you deny, say. So diversity then becomes a, a, a means. It's a means to the end of solidarity, but solidarity is a form of unity, not a form of diversity. Is this desire for something more, uh, the return of the strong gods, as you put it, is is this fully consonant with social conservatism as we've known it? Yes, we hear I, a lot about populism. Right. We're, we, you don't hear social conservatism spoken of very much these days, but, oh, but is, it was, is this it? Oh, I think, I mean, again, to go back to, this, to the union, say the union, we had Trump championed the passage of a bill to, for the federal government to offer 12 weeks leave. I think it was 12 weeks leave for for parents, new for childbirth. 
father and mother. Father, I think father and mother. Oh, right. and, uh, and he commended that to uh, the private economy as well. So that's a kind of pro-family yeah. sentiment, which I think is actually uh, pretty widespread left-right, center-right, center-left. Increasingly today, there's a recognition that uh, the, the fabric of the family is very much frayed. And then nation, patriotism. So I think there's a family nation social conservatism that's becoming quite prominent. Home. Yeah, home. that's my theme that I What's emphasize, home. home. Uh, that you that we have a sense of of home and heritage uh, that we're we have a family that we're from that we're loyal to we have a civic order that we're where we feel at home and to which we're loyal I mean again and then I think the third of course is religious where we have a sense of uh, the father in heaven not just the father in the household uh, and in our political culture we have to tread lightly on the questions of religion because of our commitment to religious freedom and non-establishment. Um, so so I, I, I see that kind of social conservatism is actually becoming, you know, the school prayer mentioned, we talked about that earlier, this th thing about paid family leave, uh, the very much uh, emphasis on America for Americans. So I, I think this social conservative element is actually stronger now than it's been for quite a long time. In, in, the politics of the Republican Party. Do you think that these turns towards school prayer, late-term abortion, are they a political winner? I'm asking for a prediction. Yeah, right. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I don't know what the general public thinks where's about the, where's the vote going to go? I do. Yeah. We we do know from polling that Americans are overwhelmingly opposed to late-term abortion, uh, and many of them just refuse to rec uh, accept the fact that the Roe v. Wade regime. Uh, effectively legalize, uh, legalizes uh, abortion all the way to, to the birth of the child. And, and um, uh, so we just need to get the message out and, and clear, clarify that and, and get that win. Do you think the Republican senators, the Republican party leadership establishment will, will push those issues in the, in, the, in the coming year? Well, I mean, I, I don't know, uh, but I think a lot of commentators have written, and I think accurately, that the Republican Party, because of the impeachment, uh, has really made the party much more Trump's party. Um, you know, it's better to hang together than to hang separately, yeah. uh, as they, as Shakespeare said. I uh, think I think it's ninety-five percent Republican support for Trump. Yeah, so I think I, it's so more than ninety percent. If, if his campaign brings this these themes forward, then the answer is yes. Um, and you know, we're kind of in a time as a country of uh, choices. And, and I'm, very grateful, I'm very grateful that, that this administration has put the pro-life cause as, as explicitly something that we as a country have to choose about. I don't think that Trump's appearance at the March for Life damaged him at all. In, in the sense that in the past, I think many presidents have just kept their distance because of fears over political damage. What will the what will the liberal press say well, you about just, you doing I this? Mean, and back to our, he, our, our, the earl, my point earlier on, the calculation was why offend why offend the fence sitting right. country club Republican 
when you already have the votes of the social conservatives like you and me. Right. And because we're living in a time where the center is dissolving, uh, you know, you, you actually, our politics, we see this with Bernie Sanders and some people on the left, that the, our, our political moment now tends to re reward explicit, clear statements of alternatives rather than a muddying uh, in the middle. And um, as I said, I think we're living in a time of choice, uh, what kind of country we're going to have and whether it's going to, whether we're going to embrace a culture of life in America and, and move forward. And that's my hope that we do. Thank you for joining us, Rusty. All right. Okay. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.